Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 24. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter here today. So you already know the context. You know the stage has been set. Paul is before King Agrippa, and he is giving his defense. And he's in the middle of proclaiming the gospel, making his answer to the king. When Festus chimes in, verse 24 to the end of the chapter, Now, as he, as Paul, thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, as we look at this um, scripture today, as we look at these verses of scripture today, Lord, teach us. Lord, may your word and may your spirit change us, conform us, and make us, Lord, brighter, more conformed images of Christ in this dark world. We ask that you would convict our hearts that you would change our minds, that you would make us your glorious people, shining bright as your witnesses in the world. Father, we ask this for your glory, knowing it is for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in verse 24, as Paul is making his defense, Right in the middle of Paul speaking to King Agrippa, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Festus was the Roman proconsul, kind of like a governor of that region. And he was not as familiar with the scriptures or with the history of the Jews or the traditions of the Jews and their religion as King Agrippa was. King Agrippa was himself a Jew. And he was well-versed in the writings of Moses and the prophets and the scriptures and, and all concerning the Jews. Festus was there as the proconsul of Rome, and he had been listening to Paul give his testimony. Now remember, Festus is not Jewish. Festus is a Roman. He's a pagan. The term atheist actually was given to Christians by the Romans 
because the Christians only believed in one God. The Romans, on the other hand, believed in a whole multitude of gods. And uh, they worshipped various gods. They worshipped their ancestors. They, they had this system of religion. Even the emperor was considered the high priest of the ancient Roman religion. And this is why you see later on as things progress that the Roman emperors after Augustus began to declare themselves gods and demand worship and demand that the people declare Caesar is Lord. This is where Jesus is Lord comes from. Because when the Romans commanded that the Christians declare Caesar is Lord as an act of worship to the emperor God, the Christians would respond, Jesus is Lord. Caesar may be the emperor, but Jesus is Lord. And so Rome began to persecute Christians, send them to their death because of their refusal to declare the emperor God. That's what Caesar is Lord means. The emperor is God, and he deserves and demands your worship. And the Christian says, no, Jesus is Lord, and only he can demand, and only he deserves our worship. So this is Festus. He's a pagan, and he does not understand what Paul is declaring. He's listening to this testimony he is hearing Paul speak of Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus. He's hearing references to Moses and the prophets and the coming Messiah. He listened as Paul spoke of the death of the Messiah and the resurrection from the dead. He's listening with a building sense of skepticism and disbelief as Paul spoke of this resurrected Christ as the first of many that would be raised from the dead. Not just this Jesus was raised from the dead, but Paul declares he was the first to be raised. This is what the gospel of salvation does. It delivers us from death and gives us hope of resurrection. And this gospel had been proclaimed to Jews and to Gentiles throughout the Roman world. And the things Paul spoke of were so foreign to Festus and his pagan beliefs that he could not hold those things in any longer. And he burst forth, Luke writes, in a loud voice in response to these wild claims that seemed to be madness to him. But these were more than the ravings of a madman that, than a learned man. This is what this is what. Festus is saying, Paul, all your learning is driving you mad. These don't sound like the, the ravings of a learned man. They sound like the ravings of a madman. And in a loud voice, Festus says, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. That term, you are beside yourself, was, fast, was Festus making a claim that Paul was literally out of his mind. He had become separated from his mind, and he had lost all sense. All that Paul claimed 
did not make sense in relation to all that Festus knew to be or thought to be true. Festus continued, claiming that much learning is driving you mad, indicating that Festus was witnessing the decline, the mental decline, the descent into madness before his very eyes. That this man who seemed to be reasonable now appears to be a madman. And this reaction by Festus, I want you to understand this very carefully. Festus didn't become the proconsul representing Rome because he was a stupid man. And Agrippa was not king of the nation because he was a stupid man. And Paul understands this. And this reaction by Festus is a deflection of the conviction that is gripping him. The only other reaction Festus could have would be faith in Christ. The claim of Festus that Paul is out of his mind is how Festus is deflecting and suppressing the truth of the gospel he is hearing. In other words, Festus is becoming uncomfortable with what he's hearing because it's true. And even in his paganism, in his Roman belief system, he is hearing the truth, he's recognizing the truth, and he's not comfortable with it. The claim that it is madness is what Festus is professing to believe. But we know from the scripture that he's actually suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. If Festus truly believed Paul was literally a madman and out of his mind, he would have never consented to send Paul to Caesar. Sending a lunatic to Caesar is not going to be a good reflection on the proconsul who sends a lunatic to the emperor. It would be a waste of Rome's time. And we know that Festus didn't really believe Paul was a lunatic and really out of his mind because Festus ended up sending him, and so did Agrippa, to Caesar. It was Festus who had to write the report to Caesar, telling Caesar why this prisoner was being sent to appeal before the emperor. If truly mad, Paul would have been dismissed as a lunatic. His ravings and rantings would never have produced the conviction of sin they obviously did. Festus knows good and well that Paul is not out of his mind. His outburst is the reaction evoked by the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Just like when we proclaim the gospel to people around us, when the world hears the truth, there is a provocation within them. The gospel provokes something in them. And it's either going to provoke faith or it's going to provoke a rejection so that they can remain justified in their sin. And this is exactly what was happening here with Festus. The tone of Festus was not humor. We may be tempted to read this as if Paul, uh, Festus is just like, Paul, you're out of your mind. <laughs> no, that wasn't the tone here. It wasn't humor. It wasn't even sarcasm. It was genuine conviction of the Holy Spirit. Here, Festus 
listening is listening to the presentation of the gospel with power. And the Holy Spirit is convicting him. Not just him, but everyone in that room listening. And there were more than Agrippa and more than Bernice and more than Festus. There was a whole entourage of people listening to Paul's presentation of the gospel along with the guards and and the slaves and the servants and everybody else. And Paul was also well aware of all that were in the room hearing his presentation of the gospel. Festus is convicted by the Holy Spirit. He was convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That's what happens when the gospel is preached. It convicts men. That's what happened when we encounter the gospel. The gospel convicts us, and it should. This is what Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit as he's getting ready to be arrested and ultimately crucified. John 16, 8, Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit whom he would send, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is what was happening to Festus. That conviction was taking place as Paul preached the gospel of Christ that day in court before Agrippa and before Festus and before all those others. And at that point of his outburst, Paul was not even addressing Festus. He was talking to the king. And Festus interrupts Paul out of sheer incredulity, out of disbelief, out of skepticism. He will not believe what he is hearing. Literally, Festus cannot believe the gospel he is hearing because his heart is hard. He is darkness. He is trapped in sin and in death. And he cannot see or hear or believe the truth Paul is speaking. He can only suppress it in unrighteousness, and that is exactly what he was doing. His Hostility to God and his opposition to the gospel was manifested in that moment when he declares Paul insane and his message insane. And what respecting proconsul of Rome would believe an insane message like this? Well, he wouldn't. Otherwise, he would not be worthy to hold his position. And so we see as many men do. They love their position. They love their power. They love their influence. And they love the approval of those around them more than they love God. And they care about the approval of men more than they care about the approval of God. This is the way the world today views us. Just the same way Festus profess to view Paul. They do not believe the truth because they cannot. All they can do is suppress it in unrighteousness because they are darkness. This is what the scripture calls us. Paul writes in Ephesians 8, you once were darkness. That applies to every single human being who has ever lived and ever will live on planet earth. And we remain darkness Not just as darkness, we remain darkness until the Lord calls light out of our dark hearts. Until the Lord brings light out of the darkness. And only God can do that. 
And all the world can do is suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they are darkness. The world makes excuses just as Festus and Agrippa did that day. The world deflects and suppresses the truth to justify their sin. They call truth madness. They call it a myth and much to do about nothing. They do that because the truth shines the light on their sin, and they have nowhere to hide from the light of truth, so they lie. The Spirit of God in you is agitating and angering to the world because of the truth that is trying to rise to the surface of their life as they continue to hold it down and suppress it in unrighteous disbelief, unbelief. Our responsibility is to continue speaking truth and love. And as we continue speaking truth and love, we may increasingly anger those of the world. We may evoke outbursts of wrath, but it is only the truth that will set men free. We never know when our speaking God's truth and love will be that time that God breaks through the hardness of a person's heart to change them for eternity. We can expect the same reaction from the world that was evoked in Festus, but that's not why we preach the gospel. We don't preach the gospel to evoke people to react in outbursts. We preach the gospel, we proclaim the gospel to evoke faith in the heart of the hearer. And it is not our place to judge the reaction, only to deliver the message. And that's exactly what Paul did as he presented his answer before this court. He delivered the message, and the message of the gospel evoked a reaction. And Paul's response to, to the reaction of Festus was very calmly. As Luke is recording this, we know exactly how this is playing out because Luke bothers to tell us in the language that he uses and the language he does not use. And the response of Paul was, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Festus, in a spontaneous outburst with loud voice, declares Paul a madman. Paul calmly directs his answer to Festus and addresses him in a most respectful way. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Paul kept his composure. I don't think Paul was even tempted to lose his composure because Paul saw Festus for who he was, a man in darkness and nothing more. And Paul's delivery of the gospel was in hopes that God, in his power, would break through the darkness of Festus and give him the gift of faith. The difference in tone and volume is plainly contrasted in Luke's record here. Paul is not reacting to Festus. He calmly responds to the outburst and reaction. Paul demonstrates how we are to respond to the outburst and the reactions of the world and their hostility toward the gospel, toward Christ, and yes, even toward us. We have the truth. We have nothing to prove. 
We are not on trial, even if we are the prisoner standing in the courtroom. It is the world that must give an account to God for their sin. Paul is the prisoner here, but he has put his judges on the defense. Do you see this? We see Paul has put Agrippa, and he has put Festus in the place of defending themselves because of the conviction that is rising up in their hearts. Paul is the one in control of this exchange. He has not lost his composure. The very one that should not have lost his composure lost it. And the prisoner stands there with perfect peace and calmness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel, declaring the truth. He is the prisoner giving his defense, yet it is Paul, the prisoner, who has Festus and Agrippa in the hot seat. And they are feeling the heat of the Holy Spirit as Paul is speaking. And Paul assures Festus that Agrippa is well aware of the things that he is speaking of that seem so outrageous to Festus. And so in verse 26, Paul says, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Agrippa, a Jew and king of the nation, he was king of the Jews, literally, was well aware of history and current events. He would have been familiar with the writings of Moses and the prophets and all the laws and ceremonies and traditions of the Jews. He would also have been familiar with Jesus, who was called the Christ. Jesus became a public phenomenon. His fame spread from Galilee and Jerusalem And people outside the region, those Jews living in the diaspora throughout the Roman Empire, those who had been over the centuries dispersed by Assyrians and Babylonians and Greeks and now the Romans who were living all over the known world, those Jews had come to hear of Jesus, the Messiah. He became famous in his life and even more so in his death and resurrection. And on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection, Jews from all over the world gathered on the feast in, for the feast in Jerusalem. And none of what God did was in a corner, but out in the open for all the world to see and to know. And this is what Paul is saying. God did not do any of this veiled. He didn't do this in a corner, hidden away. He did this out in the open so that everyone would have to see and would have to know. And the only way they could deny it would be to suppress it willfully, unrighteously, because they would not deal with the truth. And so men still do today, just as they did in Paul's day, just as they have always done. We are not told what Agrippa believed about all these things, but he would certainly have known these things. He would have been aware of the ministry of Jesus, his crucifixion, his claimed resurrection, and now the growing sect of believers who were spreading throughout the Roman Empire. He obviously knew the name Christian because he uses it in response to Paul. Agrippa was also familiar with what was happening concerning Jesus in this new sect. 
He was familiar enough that he uses the name Christian, which had been coined in Antioch in Asia, where Agrippa had previously ruled. He no doubt was familiar with all that had happened. He was aware of these Christians, and he knew Paul would make him one if Paul could. Paul knew, though, it was not man. It was not in the power of man, but in the power of God that Agrippa or any other person would come to faith and believe in Jesus. Paul understood that none of these things had escaped Agrippa's attention, as it was his place to know these things as king of the Jews. Paul, with complete boldness, directs his question to the king. Now, I've actually had to testify in court before, and I'll tell you it was the most frustrating thing I've ever done. Because you can't just talk when you want. You can't just ask questions when you want. And the judge had to remind me, Pastor Ripple, I know you want to tell your side of the story, so to speak. I was, I was called, I was subpoenaed as a witness to testify on behalf of someone against my will. But I went. And it was very frustrating because what I really wanted to do is just get up there and tell my story and address the judge and address everybody else, but that ain't how it works. But yet Paul here addresses the king directly. In fact, he questions the king, and he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now, you might not understand how bold that was, but that was boldness. And if that wasn't bold enough, Paul doesn't even wait for Agrippa to answer. I don't think Agrippa would have answered. Paul answered for him and says, I know that you do believe. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? That is the question of Paul, the prisoner, to the king who is his judge. And in even greater boldness, no doubt prompted by the Holy Spirit, Paul answers the question for the king. I know you do believe. You might think the king would be tempted to say, how do you know what I believe, sir? But that's not what the king did. The king didn't say anything. When you read the Bible, you need to read what the Bible says, but you also need to read what it doesn't tell us. And the Bible doesn't tell us of a response from Agrippa here because there wasn't a response. And Agrippa's silence is very telling about what's happening here. Paul is leading the king down a path. Paul's intention is to lead the king and any others who would follow down a path leading to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And Agrippa, a very bright man, understood exactly what Paul was doing. Agrippa quickly responds to Paul as he understands Paul's intentions here. Now, keep in mind, Agrippa did respond. Agrippa didn't answer the question. And Agrippa's response was not about the question per se. And Agrippa's response in the King James, in New King James Version, says this. 
Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, when we read that, what we think, what is normal for us to think, is that Agrippa is saying, Paul, you've almost talked me into believing in Jesus. But that's not actually what is being said here. That's how the King James Version reads, but the word there for almost is really not the most accurate translation. In the ESV, the word almost is not used. The ESV reads like this, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? The word almost used in the King James Version is, is, is giving us this idea that Agrippa was on the verge of believing. But that's not actually what the Scripture is telling us here. Agrippa is not actually saying, You almost convinced me to become a Christian, Paul. The Greek word for almost there literally means little, few, and short. And what Agrippa was really saying, what he's indicating is that he understands exactly what Paul is trying to do. That in a short or a confined space of time, Paul's intention was to lead Agrippa to faith in Christ. And Agrippa knew Paul desired him to become a Christian. But Agrippa is, is not indicating what Paul almost did, what Agrippa is indicating is what Paul is desiring to do. So the rendering in the ESV is not an acknowledgement that Paul had almost persuaded Agrippa to become a Christian. Agrippa indicates his awareness of Paul's purpose. Agrippa is actively evading Paul's attempt to lead him to a profession of faith in Jesus. In that short space of Paul giving testimony before King Agrippa, Agrippa felt the power of God in Paul's proclamation of the gospel. God, though, did not in his power save Agrippa in that moment. Men can be moved by the power of persuasion, but they cannot be saved by it. Men can be moved by the power of the gospel and the gospel not save them. I believe Festus and Agrippa were both moved by the power of the gospel, but they obviously were not saved by it. It was not the power of persuasion that moved Agrippa. It was the power of God through the proclamation of the gospel. Men are always moved by the gospel, either to salvation or away from it. And Agrippa, though obviously moved that day, was moved away from it. How do we know? We know by his reaction. So here's what the ESV, here's how this is, is laid out in the ESV, beginning in verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would, be, I would to God that you not only, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changed. In other words, Paul is saying whether it was in a short space or a long, he would that Agrippa and every person hearing him that day, except for him being a prisoner, would become just as he is. In other words, in total and complete 
submission and devotion to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That was Paul's desire for Festus, for Agrippa, and for everyone hearing him that day. And Agrippa knew this is exactly where Paul was leading him, down a path to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. Paul's obvious desire was for Agrippa to become a Christian, confessing Jesus as the Christ. That did not happen. Agrippa instead rejected that acknowledgement and evaded Paul's question. Agrippa, in other words, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Agrippa and Festus were not only the, they were not the only audience that Paul had. There were others listening silently to all that was being said. And Paul was well aware of every person in that room. And he knew that he was casting seed into the hearts of every person listening and hearing his declaration of the gospel. Paul acknowledges those in the room when he is referring to all who hear him that day. Paul understood very well that it was not his job to talk men into believing. It was his responsibility, and it is ours today, to passionately and patiently present the gospel while trusting in the power of God to work in the hearts of those men hearing. Paul knew Agrippa believed the prophets, or at least he knew Agrippa professed to believe them. And if Agrippa would have acknowledged such through Paul's leading, the logical procession or progression would be for him to believe all that the prophets and all that Moses wrote about the coming Christ. And Agrippa could see this progression that Paul was taking him down, and Agrippa cut it off and rejected it. That's why he didn't answer Paul's question. Paul knew he would not answer his question. But Paul was also letting Agrippa know, I know what you know. And I know that if you reject Christ, you do it knowingly and willingly. Agrippa understood that and Paul understood that. And Paul was letting Agrippa know that he understood that. Agrippa saw that the beginning of faith was in believing Moses and the prophets and that Paul was guiding him to an end result which would be faith in Jesus. And Agrippa was not willing to become a Christian. Perhaps he knew that what, what that would mean and how that would potentially affect him and his position with Rome and the Jews. We're not told why. But it is clear that after Paul had said these things, the only course of action for Agrippa was to evade the question and end the interview. In other words, we don't know what was in Agrippa's mind, but we know the result. He rejected Christ. He evaded Paul's questions and Paul's leading to that faith in Christ. Now, we know it was because Agrippa obviously was like Festus. Though Festus was a pagan and Agrippa was a Jew, it wasn't, it wasn't the paganness of Festus that would would uh, make a difference ultimately, and it was not the Jewishness of, of Agrippa that would make a difference ultimately. It's what they did with Jesus that would make a difference ultimately, pagan or Jew, it didn't matter. It's what are you going to do with Jesus? And verse 30 says, when he had said these things, talking about Paul, 
The king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. In other words, Agrippa saw exactly where Paul was taking him and he was not willing to go there. Agrippa would not allow himself to be put in a position to acknowledge Christ. He evaded Paul's question and abruptly ended the session to avoid a position that would require him to answer Paul's claim concerning Jesus. It was never up to Agrippa to save himself. It was up to God. It was not the power of man to persuade him. It was the power of God that would ultimately save him or not. God did not save Agrippa that day. I don't know what happened to him in history, but that day he rejected Christ. Agrippa, true to his nature of sin and death, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and literally chose to escape the confrontation rather than deal with the truth. And Agrippa may have escaped the confrontation with the truth, but he cannot and nor can any man escape the truth. None of us can. No man can. In a short space, there is no doubt Agrippa was moved and convicted by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit, though he was not moved to salvation. And verse 31 says, And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It was not in spite of or in discrimination of Paul that he was kept bound. It was the Roman legal system in the eyes of Festus and Agrippa. From their perspective, Paul was falsely charged, but Paul's appeal to Caesar while the, with the consent of Festus set the wheels in motion that would ultimately send Paul to Rome. That's what it looked like on the outside to a governor and a king. But what Festus and Agrippa both failed to understand was that in reality it was God that had set these wheels in motion long before Festus and Agrippa even knew of or became acquainted with the Apostle Paul. It was God who had bound Paul for Rome to make known the gospel of Christ. Paul did this in the presence of the least to the most powerful of men. It mattered not to Paul whether he preached to paupers or to kings. He saw all men for exactly who they were and where they were. No matter their station in life, he saw all men in need of the same Savior. He saw the need in Festus, he saw the need in Agrippa, and he saw the need of every person in that room that heard his voice that day. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, king or slave, it did not matter. All that mattered and all that matters is the salvation that comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that contains that message of salvation. And we are to carry it to all men even if they think we're crazy. We are to carry it to all men in all places under every circumstance. That is what Paul was driven to do by God's grace. He was driven to preach Christ to any and to all who would hear. And so may we today, may we be so driven 
by God's grace to make known the gospel of Christ. May we seek to make Christ known in word and in deed to all we meet and in all we do. And as we do so, we trust that God will work. Not our work, but His work. Not our power, but His power. Not our persuasion, but the Holy Spirit breaking through the hardness of men's hearts, saving them in spite of themselves by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are to trust God to work in the hearts of those we are given opportunity to share the gospel. And to share the gospel we are. That is what we are called to do. This is our obedience to go and to make disciples. We're not called to trust in governments, though God has given us government. And we should make it as godly as we possibly can. That does not begin at the ballot box. That begins in the prayer closet. That doesn't begin in City Hall. It begins in the halls and rooms of our homes and of our hearts. And if we as the church think today our salvation is a particular political party or political ideology or political candidate, God will keep allowing us. He will allow us to keep descending into darkness and into his ever-increasing judgment until the church opens her eyes and realizes that the problem is not the world. The problem is here in the house of God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will heal their land. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. The problem are with, is with pastors who will not courageously proclaim the gospel. The problem is with Christians who are more worried about the world thinking they're crazy than telling the truth and suffering the consequences of it. And until the church gains some backbone and some courage, don't look for things to change in a positive direction anytime soon because they're not going to. You can vote all the R's or D's or conservatives or liberals or whatever you want into office and nothing is going to change until the church repents of her sin and cries out to God and begins to stand up and boldly proclaim the gospel, not just inside the four walls of our churches, but where we live life, where we raise our families, where we earn our living, where we play, where we work, everything in every way. And if we'll trust God and believe God, he'll give us opportunity to give that witness to those he brings across our path. Amen? Let's get ready and come to the table of the Lord. So I'm going to give you your charge. We're going to pray for the food. We're going to sing the doxology, and then we're going to all go eat. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited because I like to eat. And I haven't broken my fast yet, so... Since last night, I ate. What breakfast is, break fast. What you do in the morning, you break your fast. 
I've been waiting to break my fast, and I'm ready to do it. You say, well, why do you keep talking then, Pastor? Here's your charge. It's not by persuasion men are saved. It is by grace. Salvation is of the Lord. God works in and through all things in both the bitter and the sweet of life. This is his story, not ours. Christ commands our obedience. That command is not conditioned upon our circumstances or our feelings. Both circumstances and feelings will deceive us and they do deceive us. This is why we walk by faith and not by sight. The truth and obedience is not conditional. God works through our obedience in proclaiming his gospel. We witness to persuade men, but it is not by our power of persuasion that men are saved. It is by the power of God. The gospel call is a call to repent, a call to turn to God, and a call to do works befitting repentance. This is why Jesus suffered and died and did rise from the dead, that we would proclaim the light to all the world. He made us light in him that we would walk as children of light. Obedience to the truth is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It is God's command. Truth is not something we can simply deflect or suppress. We are all accountable to the truth, and we all will give an account one day. But here are the comforting words of Scripture. In that day, we have boldness, we have confidence, because as he is, so are we in this world. This is the perfect, the complete love of God with which he has loved us. It should cast out our fear. It should give us confidence. If it gives us confidence and boldness before God, it surely must give us confidence and boldness before any man. What should we do with Jesus, who is called King of the Jews? Well, we should obey him, we should worship him, and we should make him known in all and through all to his glory. Amen? Amen. Father, we ask your blessing on the food next door. We thank you for providing it in every good and perfect gift. We thank you for our time of fellowship. Let this food be nourishment to our bodies. Let our fellowship be edifying, encouraging to us, and glorifying to you. I pray that everyone will stay. And Father, I just am so thankful so thankful for your body. I'm so thankful for your people. Father, we bless your name. We pray you will be blessed through our lives.